Hello and welcome to Books by Old Dead Guys. This is episode number 38. I'm David. I am Scott. And we have been moving through chapter 3 of Books by Old Dead Guys. And this last episode, we spent talking about pride. And Baxter had very many things to say about pride. And I would say that all of them were very punchy. I would agree with that. <laughs> and yes. I, I felt, uh, coming out of last week's episode, I felt like uh, I had just been assaulted by a, um, a jackhammer. Just, in, the, in the most wonderful in sort the most, of ways. In the most edifying kind of way, I was yeah. just assaulted by a jackhammer. It kind of like when we walked through Romans 1 and Romans 2 as yeah, a church together. very right? similar. Like, yeah, you stink. <laughs> you stink. But. Remember, you stink. But. So we're picking up uh, kind of mid-paragraph in chapter 3 under point 1 because it's a very, very long one. And so I'm going to start with a sentence that that begins, A Fearful Thing. So if you're reading along, you could pause right here and uh, and find your spot, and then we'll get going. So I'm going to take just a two-second pause, and then I'll start reading so that you can be where we are. Okay, here we go. A fearful thing it is that any man who hath the least of the fear of God, should so envy God's gifts, and had rather than his carnal hearers should remain unconverted, and the drowsy unawakened, than that it should be done by another who may be preferred before him. Yea, so far doth this cursed vice prevail, that in great congregations which have need of the help of many preachers, we can scarcely, in many places, get two of equality to live together in love and quietness, and unanimously to carry on the work of God. Mm. But unless one of them be quite below the other in parts, and content to be so esteemed, or unless he be a curate to the other and ruled by him, they are contending for precedency and envying each other's interests, and walking with strangeness and jealousy toward one another, to the shame of their profession, and to the great wrong of their people. I am ashamed to think of it, that when I have been laboring to convince persons of public interest in capacity, of the great necessity of more ministers than one in large congregations, they tell me they will never agree together. I hope the objection is unfounded as to the most, but it is a sad case that it should be true of any. Nay, some men are so far gone in pride that when they might have an equal assistant to further the work of God, they had rather take all the burden upon themselves, the more than they can bear, than that anyone should share with them in the honor, or that their interest in the esteem of the people should be diminished. Ooh. Ooh. Well, that's not any easier to read. So he starts that it's a fearful thing that we should be so envious of the Lord's gifts that we would rather see our people be unconverted or, or be not be made to look like more like Christ than, than to have somebody else do than it. Than to share that limelight, to share that glory. We would rather see it just not done right. than to see it done mm. by someone else's hand. Mm. And then he goes on to uh, a, a problem that he's referenced earlier in the book and that he's come back to a couple of times of if you have a large congregation, if there is a much work to be done and if there is able means to do it, have multiple people, have multiple men ministering in one congregation right. so that the work may be better accomplished. Right. But yet he's saying 
man, sometimes I, I bring forth that idea and I, I put forth that recommendation and the people look at me and say, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. These people can't agree. And, and his, and I, I can just see Baxter, you know, putting his face in his hands going, what do you mean? Seriously, people? They can't agree? Yeah. I feel like, I feel like Baxter would agree with R.C. Sproul, who once famously said, what's wrong with you people? What's, what's wrong with you people? Yeah. But I mean, that comes back to pride, yep. you know, that, that two, two ministers equally gifted if they do not live together in love and quietness and unanimously carry on the work of God it, it, it comes back to pride yeah you know that that and it's, it's so easy it's so easy it, it, he says he hopes the objection is unfounded but yet it, it appears that he it's probably not he, he suspects it is not oh, unfounded my goodness all right well, let's see what else we do here. Hence also it is that men do so magnify their own opinions and are as censorious of any that differ from their own in lesser things as if it were all one to differ from them and from God. Oh. They expect that all should conform to their judgment as if they were the rulers of the church's faith. And while we cry down papal infallibility, too many of us would be popes ourselves and have all stand to our determination as if, we were infallible. Mm. It is true. We have more modesty than expressly to say so. We pretend that it is only the evidence of truth that appeareth in our reasons that we expect men should yield to. And our zeal is for the truth and not for ourselves. But as that must needs be taken for the truth, which is ours, so our reason must needs be taken for valid. And if they be but freely examined and be found fallacious, as we are exceedingly backward to see it ourselves, because they are ours. So we are angry that it should be disclosed to others. We so espouse the cause of our errors as if all that were spoken against them were spoken against our persons. And we were heinously injured to have our arguments thoroughly confuted by which we injured the truth and the souls of men. <coughs> Excuse me. The matter is come to this pass through our pride that if an error or fallacious argument do fall under the patronage of a reverend name, which is nothing rare, we must either allow it the victory and give away the truth or else become injurious to that name that doth patronize it. For though you meddle not with their persons, yet do they put themselves under all the strokes which you give their arguments and feel them as sensibly as if you had spoken of themselves because they think it will follow in the eyes of others that weak arguing is the sign of a weak man. If therefore you consider it your duty to shame their errors and false reasonings by discovering their nakedness, they take it as if you shamed their persons. And so their names must be a garrison or fortress to their mistakes, and the reverence must defend all their sayings from attack. Mm. Mm. So he starts with, there are some among, among us who think that to differ with us is to differ with God, mm -hmm. you know, who equate differing with the pastor to differing with God himself. Mm -hmm. That if you come down on a, a different situation, if you have a difference of opinion in theology with right. your pastor. You obviously have a difference of opinion with God, God himself, <laughs> which is, which is fairly common. Unfortunately mm -hmm. in, in our context, but yet, man, it is unfortunate that it is so common 
because of the work of some that it is not common by accident, but some people have put forth this idea in order to make it so. Yeah. Well, coming here was the first time I heard the phrase M O G. Mm. And if you're coming out of fundamentalist background, you know exactly what that phrase means. M O G stands for man of God. And that verse came in a very well-intentioned senior member of our church. who's no longer with us said, I would disagree with you, but the Bible says to touch, not the Lord's anointed. And they quote this verse out of Psalms, Mm. you know, and it has been used over and over again as a reference to, you don't get to disagree with the pastor. And I've said, wait a second, say that verse again. (laughs) And they said, touch not the Lord's anointed. And I'm like, well, where is that? They showed me in the Psalms where it was. And I read it and I said, you do know this Psalm is talking about Jesus, right? Like Jesus is the Lord's anointed. And he was like, well, yeah, but that's just typically been applied to pastors. And I went, ooh, <laughs> you might apply it to some other pastors. But please. Please don't apply it to this one. Please. That's the last thing I need is for people to think they can't disagree with me. Mm-hmm. Boy, because I, I, I need that. I, I, have a, I have a healthy need for people to just look at me and go, I think that's wrong. Like I, mm. It actually helps me function to have that. And so the idea, it terrifies me, the prospect that somehow you could just say things and people would think that they can't disagree with you because of a position that God has put you in. And mm, yeah, but it's, it's so dangerous that, yeah. to, and, and yet happens so often. Yeah. And that's exactly what, what Baxter goes on to describe that when there is a matter that the truth does not align with what, with someone's reputation, what they have put their reputation behind, you have two options. You can either neglect the truth and lose the truth and keep the person's reputation, or you can attack the person's reputation and keep the truth. Right. But you cannot do both. Right. You cannot keep the truth without going against what someone has said and going against their reputation. And and, and Baxter Baxter says there is no other there is no other way. Got to air on truth. Yeah, and and so. Yeah. Mm. He said, we cannot have their names be garrisons and fortresses to their mistakes. Right. We cannot have their reverence defend all their sayings from attack. That no one among us can be so far up the totem pole that we cannot, we, we cannot be above criticism. Right. We cannot. Right. That if you make a mistake in a sermon, the church ought to feel free to be able to come and tell you. Yes. You know, like I was, I'd only been here a few months and I preached a sermon. And to this day, I still have to really think about it because I get Jeroboam and Rehoboam backwards. It's just a habit. Like, you know, and and in fact, I get them backwards so often, I'm not going to tell you how I get them backwards for fear that I get them backwards as I'm trying to explain this. (laughs) But in a sermon, I was using these two as an illustration and I got them inverted. You know, mm-hmm. I got one of them as, you know, the one who was, who was, who had the wicked counselors and I got that backwards and, um, I didn't realize it, had no idea that I got it backwards. And one of the, one of the members of this church who, who is no longer with us, um, came up during, right then we had still the invitation time, came up during the invitation time and had written a little note that. I had gotten it backwards, gave me the Bible reference and everything. Mm. And I walked back up when everything was all said and done. I walked back up to the pulpit. I looked at the Bible reference and I said, someone who loved me enough mm. to tell me that I had gotten made a mistake 
pointed out to me that in my sermon today, I got this and this backwards. And I want to be sure that we go home knowing the scriptures well. So let's go back to this passage. And we went back, read the passage. I showed that they were right. And literally, I mean, it's just a stopwatch is right twice a day, right? He came up to me afterwards. He said, I've never seen a pastor do that. Mm. And that doesn't mean I did something great. It means that there've been a lot of guys who've done some things wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Like you should, it should be a joy to us. Number one, that our, that our, the people of our church, that our sheep know the scriptures well enough to recognize when we've gotten something backwards and love us enough to not let us just sit there in error. Now, all of a sudden, my reputation is tarnished because guess what? I'm not an infallible Bible scholar, you know, but guess what? I'm not an infallible, infallible Bible, Bible scholar. scholar. I'm just a beggar helping mm. other beggars figure out how to find bread. Mm. And that is so essential. Otherwise, you just begin to think more highly of yourself than you ought. Mm. So, okay. All right. We got to keep it. One more, mm. maybe one more big paragraph. Let's, Let's do one more. Here. Yeah. So high indeed are our spirits that when it becomes the duty of anyone to reprove or contradict us, we are commonly impatient, both of the matter and the manner. Boy, I'm guilty of that. We love the man who will say as we say and be of our opinion and promote our reputation, though in other respects he be less worthy of our esteem. But he is ungrateful to us who contradicteth us and differeth from us and dealeth plainly with us as to our miscarriages and telleth us of our faults, especially in the management of our public arguings, where the eye of the world is upon us, we can scarcely endure any contradiction or plain dealing. I know that railing language is to be abhorred, and that we should be as tender of each other's reputation as our fidelity to the truth will permit. But our pride makes too many of us think all men condemn us that do not admire us. Yea, and admire all that we say and submit their judgments to our most palpable mistakes. We are so tender that a man can scarcely touch us, but we are hurt. And so high-minded that a man who is not versed in complimenting and skilled in flattery above the vulgar rate can scarcely tell how to handle us so observantly and fit our expectations at every turn without there being some word or some neglect which our high spirits will fasten on and take as injurious to our honor. Mm. <clears throat> so he talks about how pride will make us ungrateful to those that come to us and differ with us and ungrateful for those who come to us and tell us our faults. But instead, we would surround ourselves with all those who think the same way we think, yep. who agree on all the things that we agree on and surround ourselves with people who look and think and act and speak just like us. Yeah. And when someone disagrees with us, and boy, the culture has totally appropriated Yes. This. If someone agrees with you, then they must dis- they must disagree with you as a human being. Like, mm-hmm. you know, to, to the, I think the culture, the, the phrase of the day is to do violence to someone's beliefs. To simply disagree and say, no, I don't think that's right, is to actually, is now been interpreted as to do violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I rarely commend a book. Um, apart from the one that we're reading. But man, Carl Truman's book, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, is not an easy read, but he has a whole chapter devoted to that idea of mm. doing violence to someone's belief and how we got there. You mm. know, this and and really he roots it, and rightly so, in pride. That mm. we we can't handle people disagreeing with us. And if you can't handle people disagreeing with you, man, ministry's definitely not the thing for you. I mean <laughs> 
Tom Rainer once said, if you want everybody to like you, go sell ice, ice cream. cream. Yeah. But do not be a pastor. Do not do this work. Yeah. And so that's, you know, but that's exactly why, because we can, we can get, and, and it's, and it's a thing we do for young men who aspire to ministry, right? Like mm-hmm. we get so excited and we pat them on the back and we're so excited for them, but we want to encourage them, totally want to encourage them. And, and so we, we just, we just encourage them and we blow their heads up and we say, mm-hmm. oh, it's just so wonderful that you're called in the ministry. Mm-hmm. And then they go to seminary where they're told, oh, it's mm-hmm. just so wonderful that you're called in the ministry. And then they go into a church that is no respecter of persons mm-hmm. and they think that everyone hates them. Mm-hmm. Because up to this point, all we've done is compliment, them. inflate their ego. Yeah. You know, and so, so of course, that's what they're going to expect. Man, no, that's not, these things should not be. Mm-hmm. So, all right, what do you think? Let's try. It's only we're 16 minutes in. If you're sitting in the parking lot, give me three more minutes. We'll, we'll stop about three minutes from now. I confess I have often wondered that this most heinous sin should be made so light of and thought so consistent with a holy frame of heart and life when far less sins are by ourselves proclaimed to be so damnable in our people. Mm. And I've mm. wondered more to see the difference between godly preachers and ungodly sinners in this respect. When we speak to drunkards, Worldlings or ignorant, unconverted persons, we disgrace them to the utmost and lay it on as plainly as we can speak and tell them of their sin and shame and misery. And we expect that they should not only bear it all patiently, but take it thankfully. Mm. And most that I deal with do take it patiently. And many gross sinners will commend the closest preachers most and will say that they care not for hearing a man that will not tell them plainly of their sins. Mm. But if we speak to godly ministers against the errors of their sins, if we do not honor them and reverence them and speak as smoothly as we are able to speak, yea, if we mix not commendations with our reproofs, and if the applause be not predominant so as to drown all the force of the reproof or confutation, they take it almost as an insufferable injury. Mm. Brethren, I know this is a sad confession. But that all this should exist among us should be more grievous to us than to be told of it. Could the evil be hid? I should not have disclosed it, at least so openly in the view of all. But alas, it is long ago open to the eyes of the world. We have dishonored ourselves by idolizing our honor. We print our shame and preach our shame, thus proclaiming it to the whole world. Some will think that I speak over charitably when I call such persons godly men, in whom so great a sin doth much so much prevail. I know indeed that where it is predominant, not hated, and bewailed and mortified in the main, there could be no true godliness. And I beseech every man to exercise a strict jealousy and search of his own heart. But if all be graceless that are guilty of any, or of most of the forementioned discoveries of the pride, the Lord be merciful to the ministers of this land and give us quickly another spirit for grace is then a rarer thing than most of us have supposed it to be. Yet I must need say that I do not mean to involve all the ministers of Christ in this charge. To the praise of divine grace be it spoken, we have some among us who are eminent for humility and meekness and who in these respects are exemplary to their flocks and to their brethren. It is their glory and shall be their glory and maketh them truly honorable and lovely in the eyes of God and of all good men, and even the eyes of the ungodly themselves. Oh, that the rest of us were but such. But alas, 
This is not the case with all of us. Mm. Mm. So he talks about how we will go to those who who are living in sin, living in the world in sin, and proclaim to them what sin they are committing, proclaim to them how they are in need of the grace of Christ, and yet when folks come to us, we, we expect them to take that patiently and to thank thank us for it yeah. because we're doing them a service. Yeah. But yet when folks come to us, if they don't come you know, couching their... Uh, couching their words in all these compliments and, yeah. and doing all this to butter up what they're saying, then we think we've we have taken it as we calls it an insufferable injury, yeah. an insufferable inner in injury that we could not could not bear what we expect of those who are unconverted. Right, right. We can dish it out, yeah, but we, we can't cannot take it. take it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's an axiom of you know, you may have heard this before too, that those who generally pride themselves in being the most blunt mm. are least capable of handling bluntness, mm. generally speaking. And, uh, and, and that is definitely true. That's been true in my life. Yeah. It's definitely true of pastors, right? It's definitely because we, we just, you get used to, you do, you get used to people just kind of letting things slide or not coming and talking to you about your sin. And so it becomes easy to think, well, if no one's talking to me about my sin, I must not be sinning, mm. right? And then and, and that's where pride creeps in. Yeah. So, man, good words by Baxter. Mm. Gosh, this is, I, I feel like about every other section we get to the end and I go, I think this has been the most helpful section of the book. <laughs> but it's really getting, I mean, this is, because this is practical stuff, not just for pastors, right? Mm-hmm. Like you think about this, you know, how do you, how do you respond when people come into your life to point out things that just aren't quite right? Mm-hmm. When they when they reveal sin to your life, how do you respond? And the way you respond is a real revealer in many cases of the pride that exists in your in your heart. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's not just a pastor thing, that's a that's a Christian thing. Yeah. And and when God exposes like Paul Tripp I think it's Paul Tripp that said, when when God exposes your sin to you, it is always grace. Mm. When God allows you to see the nature of the sinfulness of your own heart, it is always his grace that has made it so. And do you see it as grace? Mm. Or do you see it like Baxter's describing of just, a, I can't believe someone would do this, come into my life and say these things. Mm. It's a big revealer of who we are. So, hmm. Helpful stuff. Well, yeah. well, we'll pick it up again next time. More to say on pride. So stick with us because uh, we've got a little while to go before we get to yeah, we, point two. At least one more. At least one more. Yep. So we'll get there. All right. Well, thank you so much, friends. We so appreciate you listening every week and uh, would encourage you to, to share this on the different um, uh, podcast platforms that you may listen to. And we look forward to talking again soon. Goodbye.